If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Jamie Metzl, author of the book Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. And dreaming is fundamentally essential to my well-being. Welcome to Wellbeings. My name is Dominic Bowden. And firstly, again, just want to start with a big thank you to everyone that has listened and shared these interviews. Whether it's Carl Honoré helping us all slow down a bit or Catherine Price making us go out and buy an alarm clock. Please keep sharing your experiences. We love hearing from you. And now to this week on Wellbeings, where we're talking about how and why we age. What does the future look like for us? Well, spoiler alert, it's good and it's bad. I just was so excited to get some time with this guy. He really is one of the leading technology and healthcare futurists in the world. So it's kind of a big topic today, the future of our species. And look, this is certainly something that I think a lot about as we age. I turned 40 a few years ago, and I think, what will healthcare look like in the future? How can we best look after ourselves to live as long and happy a life as possible? It's thinking about it not only as lifespan, but health span. Feeling good, fit, and able for longer. And today's guest dives into wellness in the future. And it does feel futuristic. But today we learn where the science of human health is heading. I learned so much from this conversation and it really opened my mind to the potential for us all, no matter how old we are. So now please enjoy my conversation with futurist and author, Jamie Metzl. All right, Jamie. Well, first of all, man, thank you so much for being here. This book here. It's an amazing read, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. What a title. And I think when people think about the future right now, they're, they're sort of in this lane of hope or the, this lane of fear. And I want to use this time with you to kind of excite people about where we're heading. I mean, this is the future of well-being, right? And one of the yep. things you encourage us to do is to think like science fiction writers, think like storytellers, right? Yep. Absolutely. And it's, that's the thing is maybe it's just the way that we work is we want to tell a story that's all good or all bad. And the story of how we're going to use the miraculous tools of the genetics and biotech revolutions, I think it's got a huge amount of good, especially if we play our cards right. But if we play our cards badly, it could bring us a lot of, of pain. And so the name of the game is to be optimistic, but not blindly optimistic and then do everything that we can uh, to optimize the benefits and be aware of and minimize any harms. Well, I think, and that's where this conversation is so great because a lot of people, it creates a little bit of fear or a little yeah. bit scared. Uh, and also they just, they don't know where to start. So f first yeah. of all, I mean, you're, you're a political commentator, you're a futurist, you're a science fiction writer yourself. What got you interested in, in, in science and the way that it kind of connects to the human race? Yeah. So I mean, the, the core thing is just, I'm curious about kind of everything. But when I was many years ago, almost 25 years ago, I was working in the U.S. National Security Council. And my then boss, uh, Richard Clark, who later became famous as the guy who, who kind of predicted 9-11, but wasn't able to do anything to prevent it. 
he always used to say that the key to effectiveness, he meant in, in Washington, but it's really true for life, is to try to see around corners and see what are the big things that are coming uh, that maybe many people don't see. And so for me, as I started scanning the horizon, it became relatively um, quickly clear to me that the new tools of the genetics and biotechnology revolutions were going to fundamentally transform our lives and world. And I didn't feel many people were talking about it. And so I just started very aggressively educating myself when I was ready, started writing articles. Then those articles got a lot of, uh, of attention. I st was started to do a lot of speaking. Um, and, uh, but I felt like I really wasn't fully breaking through because I felt this, it, it's not, it, yes, there are technical issues, but the core, the core issue isn't the, the science, it's not the technology, it's this big idea that anybody can understand which is that after billions of years of evolution, our one species suddenly has the increasing ability to read, write, and hack the code of life. And the question is, what are we going to do with those godlike powers? And so when I speak to seventh and eighth graders, when I speak to the top scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and universities around the world, everybody gets that equally. And that's why I've written the book. That's why I'm happy to do podcasts and conversations like this because we all need to be part of understanding what's happening and more importantly, be part of the decision-making process to, to determine how we think these, these very, very powerful technologies can and should best be used. And it's easy to kind of drift off and think we're in some sort of Black Mirror episode, right? Even now, yeah. this last year and a half that we've all been through, for those that really don't know anything, I mean, what is... Uh, genetic engineering. Let's start in the in the basics. I think everybody uh, knows that um, the information in each of our cells, other than a, a few blood cells, but pretty much all of our cells have a nucleus, and the genetic information is the genome. I think lots of people learned about this in at least in in, in high school. And in in the the nucleus of our cells, there is this information. Uh, that determines who we have the potential, who and what we have the potential to be. And our ancestors have interfered, manipulated uh, genetics through all sorts of things, including mate choice. When we domesticated plants and animals, our ancestors, not knowing anything about genetics, knew something about how traits are passed on. Beginning roughly in the 1970s with a technology called recombinant DNA, we develop the tools to make those kinds of changes more precisely. Uh, and now we have the ability, as I was saying before, to read and in some limited ways to write the code of life. And so genetic engineering is basically the application of this science of using genetic technologies to make changes on a genetic level to life. It applies to humans, it applies to all living, uh, living organisms. And we're at the beginning stages of this revolution uh, that will be the, among the most significant transformations, not just of, of our lives, not just of human life, but really of all of life on earth. It's easy to kind of feel your brain explode, right? Uh -huh. it's, yeah. it's hard to wrap your head around. And yeah. I guess this feels like a 
very far off future. And so I guess the, the, the question that comes to my mind is how, how close are we to this? You know, is this my yeah. lifetime or is it my children's lifetime? Yeah, yeah. It's your, it's your lifetime and it's your children's lifetime and it's their children's lifetime forever. Just so just imagine uh, you were living in, uh, in England uh, in the, the uh, 18th century, in the beginning of the steam revolution. And you'd say, well, that's kind of cool. They found another way to generate energy rather than people and horses and cows pulling things and whatever, it would be very hard for you to wrap your mind around going from there um, through coal to the entire revolution and how we think about energy. And now it's just every day, the fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that we have, uh, that we live in buildings, in cities, everything is connected to that. And we've integrated that so fundamentally that we don't even think of it as magic. And that's just you know, the not even a short number of centuries. And so we're now living in a world of exponential change where the rate of change is accelerating because every innovation begets more innovation. Because uh, we have 100 years ago, uh, we had about 2 billion people on earth with a 20% literacy rate. That meant about 400 million people able to share uh, in the world of, of, of communicable knowledge in any significant way. Now we've got 8 billion, 85% uh, literacy rate. So that's around 6 billion people. We're connected in these networks. So nobody has to invent the same thing that's already been invented once. And then we have these technologies where there's a super convergence that the computer revolution begets the AI revolution, begets the biotech revolution, and we unlock the secrets of biology, which give us faster computer chips. So everything is uh, accelerating. And that's why our internal sense of change of time is just way too conservative. You, you, you quoted me before, and I think it's right, everybody, we all need to think like science fiction writers. Um, and so this change, it's your lifetime. It's all of our lifetimes. And we're seeing it right now. I mean, anybody who has the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, you are um, putting the biotech revolution into your body. You are putting magic into your body because what these vaccines are doing, it's very different from what the polio vaccine did, which was a, lie, a dead or attenuated version of that virus. The mRNA vaccines are basically injecting instructions to your cells to do something that they weren't naturally designed to do, which is create this foreign object, uh, which is the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus then your body identifies that foreign intruder that you have produced. You are the manufacturing plant, and that's how you get your, uh, your immunity. So all of this stuff, it seems like magic until it shows up. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to get my vaccine. Or, oh, yeah, I just have this cancer, and now it's treatable. Uh, and, oh, yeah, and you, we could go on and on for the, the oh, yeahs. Um, but once it happens, it's just, it just becomes normal. So this is not some kind of sci-fi future, although the future will be fundamentally transformed by it. Uh, this is really a revolution for now. And that's why, again, everybody needs to understand what's happening. So you, we can all feel like we're part of this transformation and we're riding uh, the wave or even directing um, how this, uh, this wave develops. For me, it's so much about people shifting from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, right? Because it is looking at it and, and saying, this is coming. 
Um, it's how we deal with it and how we approach it. So when you're talking about one, one of the things we're trying to do with this series more than anything is give people um, actionable steps that they can take. I mean, this is the future of well-being for the planet. So yeah. what is exciting you about yeah. what's coming down the chute? So I love that you said the future of well-being, not just for us, but for the planet. Um, and it's exactly right. So let me, let me first t- talk about natural and what is natural. Um, there are a lot of people who say, well, when I hear about these tools of the genetics and biotechnology revolutions, that feels unnatural. And I get it because we have things that we're comfortable and familiar with, and there are other things that just seem strange and new. But relative to our ancestors, agriculture, farming is a radical form of biotechnology. Domestication of animals is a radical form of, of biotechnology. Um, so, and we, we live in the Anthropocene, in this era where humans have fundamentally transformed the world around us in ways that have not been good at all uh, for the planet in many ways, um, for the animals, uh, we've driven mass extinctions, uh, uh, industrial farming, industrial animal farming is cruel and it's dangerous, not just to the animals, but to us, because we have to pump these animals full of, of antibiotics. And so I get that some people will say, oh, we should just do everything natural, but we've already passed that point. We were moving towards 10 billion humans. Um, and I wouldn't say, well, if, uh, because we have 10 billion humans, you know, if some 15-year-old kid gets some terrible cancer uh, and we can cure that kid using the incredible tools of gene therapy, uh, we shouldn't do it because we have 10 billion humans. And so we are, we've already passed the point of say, it's not technology, yes or no, it's technology, how best. And so for humans, uh, that means we should and, and must maximize healthy living, healthy lifespan. For animals, I believe that we should aggressively use the tools of, uh, of uh, biotechnology that are very similar to the uh, applications for healthcare to explore uh, clean proteins, regenerative, regenerative cell cultures to generate meat through a bioreactor of a bioreactor rather than thinking of a cow or a chicken or a pig as some kind of bioreacting instrument um, that we don't afford it any value of life. Frankly, most people could absolutely care less about the the quality of life. So if we can just grow animal protein in a bioreactor that is meat on a cellular level, why wouldn't we do it? If we can grow energy rather than dig it up and go to wars over it, why why wouldn't we do that, right? We can store, I think everybody knows DNA um, has much greater storage capacity than silicon. Uh, as a matter of fact, recently, uh, the, uh, the DNA of a mammoth from a million years ago was dug up uh, from in the deep frost, and it was readable. Try digging up your, your cell phone a million years from now and, and see uh, what comes up. So there's a lot that's so exciting for humans, for the planet. But as we said earlier, there's an upside and there's a potential downside. And so that's why we, we, can't, be, we can't see all of this through rose-colored glasses. We need to be realistic. And, and the way we're going to benefit is by focusing on how do we optimize the good stuff and how are we very clear about what the dangers are and address those head on. Dangers. I mean, we, we might as well touch on them right now. And, and just 
food for thought for people out there? I mean, what does this look like if we don't do it properly? So there's a lots of things that that if we don't do it properly on every one of the levels that I've just discussed. We talked about gene therapies. Um, the same technology of manipulating genetics could be used for all kinds of, uh, of dangerous ways. You may know and your listeners may know that I've been one of the leaders of the global movement since early 2020, calling for a full investigation into all possible uh, origins of the pandemic, uh, one of which is the possibility that the, the pandemic stems from an accidental lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or another uh, virology lab in, in Wuhan. And if that is, is the case, um, there could be very well a connection between the kinds of stuff of things that we're talking about and this terrible pandemic that, depending on the, your count, has, has killed maybe uh, more than 10 million people globally. Um, we talked about our ability to increase agricultural yields and do all kinds of things and uh, improve the quality of life for animals. But the opposite could also be true, uh, that we are entering a, a, an era of synthetic biology, and all of these technologies don't come with built-in value systems. It's up to us to infuse our best values into the application of our most powerful technologies. Well, you talk about the last year and a half. You talk about maybe the next pandemic being a mental health one. How do we level up post-COVID using all this incredible technology? So it's not just about technology. It's about us on a, on a personal level, because as cool as the technology is, as exciting as it is, and through these uh, vaccines, the technology is really saving us. I mean, I, it's, it's funny to think of, I don't know if everybody saw the, the Jon Stewart rant um, with uh, Stephen Colbert about uh, the, these incredible scientists have saved us from what scientists likely did. Um, so it is kind of whatever the origins of the pandemic, uh, the fact that we have this hope um, of the vaccines is just incredible. Because if we didn't have it, imagine this was like 100 years ago with the Spanish flu, and we just had to wait um, for this virus to burn through um, whatever, 7.8 billion humans. I mean, that would have been even more terrifying uh, than, than this is. So certainly... There are lots of lessons. This, this pandemic has accelerated many of these technology revolutions, and that has the potential uh, to be great. But the real answer to your question, I believe, is more on a personal level, because I think this, the, the, the pandemic has forced us to ask some big questions. And maybe the most important is, what does it mean to be a really great human being? Like, What does it mean? There are a lot of things that technology can do. Uh, right now, we're, we're connecting virtually. Um, what are the things that can happen virtually? What are the things that have to happen and can happen of humans being the physical beings that we are and being, uh, and being together with one another? I think there were a lot of people, everybody knows different people who responded in different ways to the stresses of this pandemic. And we all know people who just collapsed. And we know people who pivoted. Um, and who said, all right, well, this is a terrible crisis, but it's not only a terrible crisis. Maybe there are opportunities here and, and maybe opportunities to be a better person, uh, to reach out to others more than maybe some of us may have done uh, in, uh, in the past, um, to think differently about how to see a future 
that is different from the one we've experienced in the past. I think in good times, a lot of us are just on cruise control, just going down the highway and we kind of keep at it. And at crisis moments like this, we really have to pivot. Um, but it's not, the pivot doesn't happen at the moment of a pivot. The pivot happens in how you live your life, how we live our lives prior to the pivot so we can be the kinds of people with the ability to pivot when that time comes. And I think for, for me, that's one of the most important lessons. Like how do we live our lives in preparation for different future possibilities, but to give ourselves the greatest chance of being the best version of ourselves, particularly in the times of crisis. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We talk about the future of um, healthcare. Um, we talk about the future of wellness, biohacking, and there's so much to dig into in your book, Hacking Darwin, that people can learn. But give us some of uh, you know, the, the bits that kind of jump out for you as far as how people will be improving their well-being in the future. So we've already spoken about our ability to treat diseases that right now seem untreatable. Uh, but I think the biggest transformation will be what I call our shift from generalized medicine based on population averages. You go see your doctor and your doctor treats you by your being an average human. And because we're all so similar to each other, that usually works pretty well. But we all know people who've had, for example, cancer treatments and the doctor says, well, we're going to try you on this. And if it doesn't work, we'll try you on that. And people start um, rotating through different treatments. So we're moving from our world of generalized medicine to our new world of personalized or precision medicine, which is based on each person's individual biology. And so to know what each person's biology is, uh, your healthcare providers, whether they're humans or AI or whatever else, or humans plus AI, which is the way it will be, they're going to need to know who you are in many ways on a granular level, including a molecular level. So they'll need to, we'll need to have really strong electronic health records that will have your family history, your personal history, your biometric information, um, and very significantly, your sequenced genome. And everyone will have our, our genomes sequenced, most likely uh, just after birth, at the same time when you get a heel prick blood test in, in most countries, um, or even before, uh, before birth. And when we have now we have millions, but hundreds of millions and then billions of people whose genetic and life information is collected in massive databases. We're going to be able to use that to crack the code of complex uh, biology, complex systems biology, including genetics. And that's going to move us from our world of personalized or precision healthcare based on each person's individual um, uh, biological identity to a world of predictive medicine, healthcare, health, and life, where we'll know a lot more about each of our ranges of possibility, including our range uh, between more health and less health. And that, I hope, um, will shift um, our healthcare system, which now it's really a sick care system because you have a symptom, 
the symptom shows up, you go to your doctor and your doctor tries to treat that symptom. But in lots of cases, that symptom uh, the, the, was the seed of that symptom started maybe when you were conceived, if it's something that's genetic. And so we'll, we'll have a much more preventive healthcare system, which will be designed to optimize benefits and minimize harms. And that's why I think it's really positive because prevention is the way to do it. And, and so that's why so many of the things, I know your listeners are focused on well-being, on the kind of blue zone stuff, the way we all know we should probably live our lives and not everybody does it. But I know in Australia and New Zealand, there's a lot of opportunities to be outdoors and, and you have you know, relatively healthy populations, I guess, compared to Americans, pretty much everyone on earth is a relatively healthy population. Um, but that stuff is going to be really important. And it's funny, my brother, uh, Jordan, is a, is a sports medicine doctor here in New York. And he works in, in probably the leading orthopedic hospital in, in the world. And I know you have this in Australia and New Zealand. Somebody hurts their knee and then they say, oh, who, what happened? And they say, oh, I, you know, my, my surgery was done by Dr. Smith. He's the doctor for the national soccer team. And people are so proud that they got a surgery from, from Dr. Smith. When, my, when they go and see my brother and he says, well, yeah, I guess we could do a surgery, um, but if we do strengthening and lifestyle and maybe you lose a little bit of weight, um, you can be, live a perfectly good life. You can use your knee as much as you need and you don't need a surgery because there's a risk of, of surgery. And I think most people are really happy about that, but some people feel like they're getting totally screwed over. They're getting screwed out of that, of that surgery. And I think that if we can shift the way we think about healthcare from sick care to truly healthcare, and if we can align incentives, and people in, in Australia and, and New Zealand, you have a benefit that we don't have here in, in the United States, because the more that there are national healthcare systems, the more uh, there are stakeholders in your long-term well-being. In the United States, average person changes healthcare providers every 18 months. And the healthcare providers are in most cases public companies. And so what that means is that every dollar the healthcare providers invest in long-term well-being is a dollar essentially that's being taken away from profits, taken away from the 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 uh, the, the profits and other rewards for the the CEO. So our most of our healthcare providers have absolutely no incentive. Uh, to prioritize well-being. Some do, uh, but they're not incentivized to do it. Uh, and and that, those kinds of crazy incentives really have to shift. Just And we pay surgeons much more for cutting people open than we do primary care physicians for keeping people out of, uh, out of surgery. So there's a, everything. That's why I love the, the, the title of your, of your show. Everything is about well-being. It's about optimizing and maximizing health. And some of these interventions are just such basic, basic, simple things. Eat well, exercise, have a positive attitude, surround yourself with, with people you, you love. I mean, the technology is really exciting, but the old school stuff is equally great. I kind of want to dig in on that a little bit because how accessible will this be for everyone? I mean, it's all about democratizing that wellness and, and making it available to the widest group of people as possible. I mean, if people are out there right now, how likely is it that they're going to have access? Yeah, so well, certainly everybody has access um, to all of the tools 
of be living like people live in, in the famous blue zones. And that's the healthy diet, exercise, positive attitude, reason for being, all, all of those things. Um, in terms of access um, to the, the kind of more technology-driven applications like gene therapies for cancer or assisted reproduction uh, technologies or things like that, uh, it's really an issue of regulation. I mean, there are countries like Israel, for example, that have far more equitable healthcare systems um, where these kinds of, uh, of uh, advanced uh, treatments are more readily accessible. Now, there are countries like the United States that have less equitable regulatory infrastructures, and it's as a result, it's, it's less equitable. So there's nothing inherent to these technologies that makes them inequitable. Uh, the question is, how do we organize ourselves as societies uh, to make sure that everybody has access at least to some minimum set of essential treatments that we collectively decide are the most beneficial. The healthcare that we have coming in the next little while, if you have someone in your life that, that you, you, know, you really want to improve their health, what advice would you give? You know, how, how quickly do you think we'll be able to help those people? You know, I've got some people in my life that uh, I have really been focused on trying to help them and precision health, I think, is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wh what would you say to those people out there that, that, that maybe have someone that, uh, that they'd want to help on a personal level? So let me break it into two parts. First, um, all of the old-fashioned things that I've described, um, they still apply, which is giving them loving support and exercise and positive attitude and surrounding by loved ones. Those are really important parts of even precision health because that we know that those interventions are absolutely essential. And then for people who have terrible diseases, for example, that are currently un untreatable, unfortunately, it really depends on the disease, because there are some of these, some people with certain diseases like, uh, like uh, sickle cell disease or Duchenne muscular dystrophy or other things where we're really right around the corner from doing what, what would just a short number of years ago seemed like a miracle. But there are other diseases that we, we yet haven't figured out. So there's a lot that's that's happening, um, but it will not be. I know some people may listen uh, to this uh, to this recording uh, and just feel well. Well, every disease that anybody um, could have um, will be treatable uh, by these technologies, and unfortunately, I wish that were the case. But some will, and so what I would also suggest is that we all need to be be very informed. Like if you have somebody who's suffering from something. That medicine is moving so quickly that your local doctor may not even know about some promising new technology. That doesn't mean the new technology um, will necessarily work, um, but there's a bigger responsibility for patients and for people more generally uh, to educate ourselves about the realm of possibility uh, because our physicians just don't have the capacity uh, and no one has to keep up um, with all of the new literature and all of the new innovation. And, and th that connects to this broader point, is this revolution is in genetics and biotech, it's gonna change not just our healthcare, but our lives and our, and our world. 
really across the board. I mentioned agriculture and food and energy and materials and data storage and, and so many different areas. And that's why I'm really happy to be, to be part of this, to be speaking with all of you. I hope people will read the book, um, Hacking Darwin. Um, I don't care about me making money. So if you can steal a copy of, of the book, especially from a friend who's already read it, I encourage you uh, to do that. But this, this revolution is coming and we all need to be part of it and we all need to be part of shaping it. I'm here in Los Angeles and there's a question that people have been asking, uh, which is, what's your number? And I go, what do you mean? They go, what's the number? What number do you want to live to? And I'm, mm. I'm intrigued to hear your take on that question, right? Like, what is your number? So my number is infinite. I mean, I, as long as I have my health, I'm having a pretty fun time in this, uh, in this life. I'd like to keep going. There's a lot mm. of stuff uh, that I'd like to do. Uh, I don't, can't imagine ever getting bored. And if I ever get bored, there's a thousand other careers, a thousand other things uh, that a, a person can, can do. Having said that, I do think there's a little bit of hubris um, to go from what I write about in, in Hacking Darwin, that we certainly can, I, I believe, extend health span. We certainly can extend average health span because it's the inequalities of the world that make so many, actually a majority of, the, of people on earth die prematurely in ways they wouldn't die if they were living somewhere else, even in a different zip code in, in the same country like, uh, like the United States. And then there are other new technologies that I think can and, and will extend health span. Uh, but it's not going to be that we go from now where the oldest person in, in, in human history lived to 122, um, where you know, 20 years from now, there's going to be somebody living to 500. Um, actually, they, that couldn't happen. But, um, but it, it's, this is going to be a little bit at a time. Uh, and so there's two issues. One, as I mentioned, average life and health span. And that's pretty easy to keep improving uh, because it's based on, on inequality and improvements can be, uh, uh, can be created through greater equality and access. But even individuals living longer and living healthier longer I think it's I think it's possible for me personally. If somebody had some kind of magic pill, and I will be the first to take it as long as I have uh, I have health. And there are all kinds of the arguments that that people make. Well, um, how can life have meaning without death? I mean, my feeling is life has perfect good meaning without death. I kind of don't like death. I, I think it it certainly you know makes you think, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Just one question, Jamie, for me as well, because I've got so many friends that are kind of obsessed with biohacking, right? Yeah. And they're trying to live longer and cut corners. And I'd love your take on this movement that seems to be happening. So biohacking is certainly very exciting. It's kind of equivalent to the early days of computing where there were these hobbyists like Steve Wozniak who were just doing what seemed like crazy things on their own, but built a whole new industry. And that's one of the differences of these tools of the genetics and biotech revolutions to other past revolutions like the nuclear power revolution, where you needed a state in many cases to do it. Here, individuals can do pretty exciting, uh, crazy stuff. I know there are a lot of people like Josiah Zayner or my friend Brian Johnson who are pretty aggressively working at, at hacking uh, themselves. So there is a lot to be learned from individuals, maybe even taking risks. But I don't think there, we should have unlimited space um, for this, just because um, what we're talking about is the future of individual health, the future of life. 
And we're all stakeholders. We're all part of this interconnected ecosystem. Uh, and it requires that everybody act responsibly. But I think creating some guardrails, creating some sensible regulation, again, that optimizes good stuff and minimizes danger, I think it makes sense. But I'm excited about the biohacking revolution. But like everything, there's a little bit to be afraid of um, also in the biohacking revolution. I was going to say, what, what's your biohacking you know, process like? You, you know, are you reoxidizing the blood? Are you, are you doing cryotherapy? Oh, yeah. well, all, of that, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, that's the easiest because it's, you know, so I don't frankly... Yeah, I don't do a lot of that. I'm not on metformin. I'm not taking rapamycin. I'm not freezing myself. I'm not, you know, traveling around the bottom of the ocean on some kind of barometric submarines. But I'm an ultra marathon runner. I'm an Ironman. I I eat the rainbow. I try to surround myself with uh, with loving uh, people, and I keep my eyes on these kinds of interventions because I, I I kind of don't want to be a radical test subject. If other people want to be guinea pigs, it will be great. I'm happy to be a beneficiary of that hacking. But I, what I want to do is live the healthiest life possible and then to, to keep my eyes on interventions. I mean, I, I have, you know, my parents are in their 80s and, and I have them uh, doing some things which I think have the potential uh, to be helpful. But again, what we're talking about here is life. It's our life. It's the life uh, of the world around us, and it's the, the life of our teeming planet. And we have to have a little bit of humility in the face of that kind of complexity. That doesn't mean uh, that we can't and, and maybe even shouldn't do uh, kinds of biohacking and maybe even aggressive interventions uh, will be necessary, uh, but we need to have a level of caution and a level of humility in that process. I want the people out there to really have something actionable, and it's almost about what, what, what we would like them to think. So for right. the skeptics out there, you know, what, what do you want people to, to think? It's a great question. Yeah, so what I want people to, to understand is, first, um, we live in a very, very different way than our ancestors based on our technologies. Things that seem very normal and very traditional, like farming, like healthcare, like whatever, eight-track tapes, these are radical technologies relative to our ancestors. And so just because something feels unnatural doesn't mean it's wrong or dangerous because there was a time when farming felt unnatural and dangerous. Everything that we have felt unnatural and dangerous until it, 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 it normalized. So nobody should be afraid of the technology in and of itself. But we should all recognize that we are making societal choices about how these technologies should be used and should be regulated, and everybody um, should be part of, the, of, that, of that process. So I think it's really important that people get educated about these, uh, these technologies. And even people who aren't educated, you know, if your wife or your child or your parent or whatever has a terrible cancer and you go to the hospital and they say, we have a gene therapy that uses the new tools of the genetics and biotechnology revolutions, and we can actually cure that cancer. So your whatever it is, um, instead of dying in, in six months or a year, will live 20 or 30 more years. I think most people would say, hey, that's pretty good. And so there's a gut reaction to say, oh, this sounds scary. Uh, this is bad. And, and there, there really are bad applications of these Technologies. We can imagine all kinds of biowarfares and 
arms races and, and, and things like that. And, and we don't need to, we don't need to deny those, those possibilities, but I would say be open-minded uh, and then think about, well, where, where are these technologies? Again, most people have these technologies already in their body through their vaccines. And, and I know you have a lot of animal husbandry in Australia and New Zealand. And so I don't want to say that it's going to be the end of, of, uh, of animal agriculture, but I think it's pretty great that we're going to be able to grow meat rather than do it, than get our meat through industrial farming. And, then, and all these kind of wonderful sheep wandering around New Zealand, I'm sure people are going to be eating them and their descendants at the Barbie for a long, a long, long time. And that, that may be different from these kind of industrial, terribly cruel, environmentally uh, costly and, and dangerous to humanity because of of antibiotic um, uh, overuse and, and resistance, these industrial animal farms. So there's, what I would say is for everybody, keep an open mind that this, is, this technology is neither good or bad, but it really has some great potentials. And then how do we regulate it in, in the right way? Um, so we, again, optimize the good and minimize the harms. Oh man, that's amazing, Jamie, and I think a pretty pretty special place to finish, um, a pretty great place to sort of to, to, to finish. I want to thank you so much for coming on and for your time. And I guess just in, in finishing, as we all come out of what has been a really tough year and a half, I think this is a kind of a good place to, to finish. It it is to be optimistic as well. Yeah. You know, we started talking about that lane of hope and that lane of fear, and I think um, if we place ourselves in, in the hope lane, you know, it's a, a pretty promising future. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, there are always dangers and this has been a very, very tough year and a half for, for most everybody. When we look at the trend lines of humanity over time, we're healthier, uh, we have less wars, there, there, we're more educated, we're more literate, um, we're more aware of each other's existence. Um, we have wonderful ideas like uh, human rights, international law, and mutual respect, and all of these, these kinds of things. And it's, it's always easy to fall into a, a trap of negativity. Uh, but to be an optimist doesn't mean you have to deny that there are dangerous and, and terrible things happening in the world. It just means that you need to recognize that we have the possibility to build a better world and that we all have a role in doing so. Well, look, man, um, on behalf of all the Australians and Kiwis that are, are listening to this right now, you, I think you've, uh, you've certainly opened some, some minds. Well, it, it's really been my uh, pleasure. And I, and I will say I absolutely love Australia and New Zealand. And I actually had plans to visit both just before the, um, uh, before the pandemic started. So I am ready and willing and able to, to head back to my, one of my favorite parts of the world. Thank you so much, Jamie, and keep up the good work, man. Really my pleasure. And there it is. Huge thank you to Jamie. And for more from him, jamiemetzel.com. I hope you feel like I did that it's so important to educate ourselves on where the science is heading so that we can make the most of it. And of course, pass it on to the younger or older people in our lives. And if you know someone that you think would benefit from this conversation, please share it with them and share your experiences with us at wearewellbeings.com or on Instagram. And more than anything, please subscribe and help us continue to build this little community. And yeah, until next time, let's support each other as best we can and ask the question, how can we grow through this 
instead of just go through it. We'll see you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.